Welcome to the 470th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome comparative literature and film studies scholar Alan Cohen to talk about the film Contagion. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. Just a quick announcement. We'll be starting at 5 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, the two-day super episode of COVID calls, which will lead to the launching of the digital archive. We have 28 episodes over two days, and the very first of those will feature Monica Green, Christos Linteris, and Jacob Steer Williams in a conversation about disease origins and premonitions. So please do join me for that. And we will be followed after that at 7 p.m. Eastern Time Tuesday with a performance by the singer songwriter John Gorka. And then we have almost every hour following that for the next two days, episodes going through every aspect of the pandemic. And I hope you'll join us for those. You can follow along on Twitter by following at US of Disaster or by following on the YouTube channel for COVID calls. As of March 14th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, 6,045,848 people around the world have lost their lives to COVID-19. I've been reading a story of advocacy or an obituary for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. Headline, South LA filmmaker Gregory Gbone Everett, director of 41st and Central, dies from COVID-19. This was written by Mike Rowe and appeared in LAist on January 28, 2021. Los Angeles filmmaker and hip-hop historian Gregory Gbone Everett has died from COVID-19 complications, according to a statement from his family. He'd been dealing with the coronavirus since early January 2021 before his death at a hospital. He was 58 years old. Everett was an important figure in South LA and West Coast hip-hop history. Everett, whose father was a Black Panther, is best known for the 2010 documentary 41st and Central, the untold story of the LA chapter of the Black Panther Party. Activist Cliff Smith discovered Everett's work in the late 2010s as police killings of unarmed black men were increasingly in the news. He was there when the Los Angeles City Council honored Everett and members of the Black Panthers in a 2018 ceremony. As Smith passed out leaflets calling for justice in the fatal shooting of 16-year-old Anthony Weber by sheriff's deputies, Everett invited him along as he met with members of the council. Smith compared Everett's work with Nipsey Hussle, emphasizing that Everett came out of the community himself. Smith told LAS that both Everett and Hussle were getting recognition and acclaim for their talent and their skills, but they still have a deep connection 
to this community of South Los Angeles, the history of it and the struggle. It's a different kind of loss than had it been some celebrity filmmaker that had done the same film from outside. Everett had a deep connection with elders in the community, Smith said, bringing the lineage of his father's Black Panther involvement. He's somebody that's carried the history of the community, Smith said. It's very motivating to see somebody who achieved those levels of recognition, but still be that center to carry his community and his family with him. Smith noted Everett's deep affection for his family with his wife and children always at his side. Everett was also one of the first West Coast DJs to play rap music in the 1980s, DJing under the names MCG and G-Bone Capone. He promoted dance parties through his company Ultra Wave Promotions, a centerpiece of the 80s LA hip hop community. During the 1992 Los Angeles riots, Everett was a freelance writer for Rap Pages and The Source magazine. His film work includes producing a documentary for Ruthless Records and BET about the late rapper Eazy-E. More recently, he curated a hip-hop exhibit event, Project West, Secrets of West Coast Hip-Hop. His projects have included work for the LA Sentinel, the city of Compton, Kobe Bryant, and LA council members Bernard Parks and Curran Price. The obituary of Gregory G. Bone Everett, the director of 41st and Central, who died in January of 2021 of COVID-19. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today and let me introduce my guest, Alan Cohen. Alan J.J. Cohen is Professor of Comparative Literature and Film Studies at the University of California, San Diego, where he spent his career. He's also a practicing psychoanalyst, member of the San Diego Psychoanalytic Center, the American Psychoanalytic Association and the International Psychoanalytic Association. He has a single author of about a hundred articles having to do with auteur filmmakers, text semiotics or art history in various journals and book chapters. And he's also presented 300 papers at least nationally and internationally. In his research, teaching and talks, his analysis focuses at the granular interweave of technical prowess and psychological motivation. And he's been kind enough to join me here today. Alan Cohen, it's great to see you on COVID calls. Thank you. Thank you, Scott Nervous. It's a pleasure. It's an honor. And uh, it's a delight also to know that this is almost a tail end of a series as if by wishful thinking, we wanted COVID to be over. So I think it's a very privileged moment as well. And I enjoy it very much. I've been moving that ending point now for well over a year when I thought I would stop doing these. And, and indeed, I have to say, even though the 500th episode is coming this week, I've decided to continue, not daily, but the pandemic has its own timeline, doesn't it? We have new avatars and we have new variants and we adapt and we are perhaps flexible and we know that we have to be in a struggle and that this will go on forever. If the risk is that we wear masks the rest of our lives, so be it. On the other hand, that's not so much of a risk next to the other possibilities when you think about contagion. Alan, let me ask you first just where you're calling from. I believe you're in San Diego. Maybe you can give us an update on how the pandemic situation looks where you are. San Diego, indeed. The, the picture is really exactly one of wishful thinking. We hope that it is over, that we have finally, uh, that Omicron's variants are conquered. 
But as I like to discuss with you, I think that uh, until Dr. Fauci gives us the yellow light to say, you may now enjoy uh, the indoors and the outdoors equally, until I hear that, I'm going to be vigilant, cautious, uh, and, um, and we got used to it. In fact, I think that uh, I'm one of those people privileged being a psychoanalyst and being a professor, doing seminars and seeing patients on Zoom all the time. And as a result, uh, the positive side is that you don't have to worry about parking. On the other hand, <laughs> the negative side is that we all become two-dimensional and uh, and that's a very sad state of affairs. But when you see a gallery of people intent, you, s you are really thanking the gods for the platform that Zoom provided us and enabling us to maintain community. And very often you see people you haven't seen in quite a while who appear in the gallery. So that's perhaps the positive side. The negative side is that you're not shaking hands, you're not having social, you, you're not being three and four dimensional, you're being static. And, uh, and that's something that we'll perhaps talk about uh, later on. Just to follow up on that briefly, I, because I do have a, a colleague and friend, Charles Strozer, who's a historian, and he's been on COVID calls a couple of times. And he's also, he's a historian and a psychoanalyst. And, and um, he moved his entire practice online because he had to. Um, and, um, he, you know, it, it's just as you described it, it's enabled things. Um, it's enabled him to take on new patients. It's enabled, you know, maybe some conversations with um, people that he wouldn't have been able to have. But at the same time, you know, there is this um, concern about that loss of the corporeal identity of being in the space with the person to have um, difficult conversations or healing conversations. I, I wonder how you feel about that now. I mean, will you go back to being in person as soon as you can? Or is this now a kind of uh, hybrid life that we must live in? I think the latter is hybrid, but uh, we became uh, camera people because we position the patients so that we can see the body lying on the couch and we can stand behind, so to speak. But I no longer know whether my patients are uh, tall or short or whether they're fat or thin. And there's <laughs> something scary in losing the experiential of a body. I cannot see them, for example, anxiously perspire and uh, I cannot see the jubilant smile. There's something there. But again, something else has occurred in the meantime to such an extent that uh, many patients says, you know, it's so comfortable just uh, seeing you and not thinking about, especially in California, not thinking about parking and uh, just being there and being on time on top of that. It's so exciting that I think we're going to have a hard time when we reopen formally and be in our old offices. We're going to have a hard time readjusting to that. But we'll see. We we are flexible. We and we want our patients to become flexible with themselves instead of having that rigidity. And so why not? <laughs> We've been talking about your work. I wonder if you would share a personal memory of this pandemic time for you. Uh, yes, I, I think that uh, it coincided precisely with um, with contagion, realizing, and we're going to talk some more about it, but realizing that uh, Soderbergh, nine, ten years before the pandemic, was anticipating practically every detail. 
And just like uh, Kubrick, who had worked very closely with NASA when he was doing 2001 A Space Odyssey, and he wanted to be technically and scientifically right on the dot, uh, similarly, Soderbergh studied quite a lot with uh, the, the WHO, with the CDC, and so on, to make sure that he was nailing down the possibilities of what would emerge and what did emerge, in effect. But we also learned that uh, the vaccine was not just an accident that was uh, that was forced full speed ahead in order to cure people. They had work on uh, RMA messenger for 10 years before, so that it was not expedited. It was really the result of real lab research that led to the uh, results of Moderna and uh, and the other uh, vaccines. Um, so I, I think there's something very, very special about understanding that the last second half of the 20th century has seen the extraordinary advances in science and pharmacology. They went to excess. But on the other hand, without that, we wouldn't be living longer life, healthier lives, and so on and so forth. So, um, so somebody asked me on a panel once to resume the uh, 20th century, and I said, "Piece of cake." <laughs> you, you can say, "You can say Auschwitz, Hiroshima, and the emancipation of women, and the advances in terms of uh, the field of medicine and the health of people." So basically, it's, it is uh, it is under this ages that we can even fathom and categorize the question of COVID-19 within those categories as well. Hmm. Let, let me, yeah. It's a metaphor of Auschwitz. It's a metaphor of Hiroshima at some level as well, because people were decimated in the same way. Let me take one second, just remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking to Alan Cohen today. We're talking about Steven Soderbergh's 2011 film, Contagion. And I want to also, I should take a moment here at the top of the broadcast, just to give a special thanks to Micah Arsham, who's a regular viewer of COVID calls and helped to make this call possible. So thank you for that, Micah. So I want to, we're going to go through every aspect of this that you want to go to. I want to confess something at the start here, Alon, which is that um, when the pandemic started, I stayed away from the films. So it, it's interesting that you describe, you know, your pandemic experience in some ways you know, it brought you back to to this film um, and the premonition um, that Soderbergh had, Soderbergh had with this film. I I went back to I went back to Camus. Um, I went back to um, wartime poetry of World War II and World War One. Uh, I was trying to make sense of loss at a large scale, and. Um, and I went back to Journal of the Plague Year. So I did have a few touchstones that I went to. But, you know, I was afraid to watch the films, honestly. Mm. I, I felt like it would be too much. It would be too overwhelming for me. And only this winter, um, actually right about the time that we were first talking about having you come on, I went back and watched everything I could get my hands on. <laughs> And I haven't decided yet whether or not it was a good idea or not, that, that it, had I done it earlier, would my frame of mind about the pandemic have been different? Certainly my reference points would have been different, but I, uh, of course I watched Contagion and Andromeda Strain and many other films at, at that time. But um, 
I wanted to share that with you at the top that I had hesitation that the film would be too powerful actually for me to really take in, particularly in March and April of 2020. Absolutely, absolutely. You you mentioned Camus and it's really very interesting in terms of his book, The Plague, 1947, but it was written in 1940 when you had the Nazi invasion of uh, Europe and how the plague starts. And as the plague starts, you have the rats coming out of the sewers. And basically the rats coming out of the sewers were like the brown plague, as we call it in French, la peste brune, which was the Nazis uh, taking over and invading. So in a certain way, this leads to an extraordinary spectrum of uh, reaction comportments on the part of people, the deontology of the medical characters, the cynicism of others, the way in which people are lost into nostalgia, or on the other hand, people are dreaming of uh, the end of that plague, etc. That was wonderful. But I think there was also an analogy with uh, Foucault and Foucault's work, the history of his work. He works on the history of madness. We put the mad people in asylum, the, the other, they're going to be in on stage. In the same way as we did that in the Middle Ages with the lepers, we put them. In the same way as we did that with prisoners, prisoners were others and were put away on the stage as well. So in a certain way, what happens with uh, Foucault and his study literally of the history of l'enfermement, surveil and punish, it's exactly the same sort of thing as the other that we love, that we desire, and the other who is a sign of death, whether it's the plague, or whether it's a leprosy, or whether it is madness, or whether it is the danger of prisoners and what they represent. And so Foucault comes very much to mind in the same way as Camus. Regarding watching films or not watching films, I think that during our quarantines, plural, during our quarantines, right. we started binging on film because it was an extraordinary outlet. And watching the uh, catastrophe film, watching the pandemic films as well, was a kind of homeopathy. In other words, more of the same, we go with depression, we go to the bottom of the barrel in order perhaps to have a chance of re-emerging. And that's really the power of art. Art makes you, leads you into a possible world, into a series of possible worlds, thanks to which perhaps your mind expands and you are able to see different types of death, different types of comportments, different mm -hmm. types of uh, reactions and different ways of dealing with chaos and dealing with uh, the helter skelter that uh, a plague would bring about. And we live that plague, you see. And uh, so you have a hyperbole, perhaps, in a bubonic plague of uh, Bergman in the Seventh Seal. Uh, you have this hyperbole, for example. But on the other hand, we need the hyperbole in order to bring it down in our mind, unconsciously and consciously, to what we are experiencing. So it's a way to cope, then? Very much so. You know, I was telling you the other day that uh, the word resilience has been so belabored that you can no longer speak about resilience anymore. Be resilient means nothing anymore. We were resilient. But it's a question of uh, a test of character, of fortitude, of endurance, and accepting our vulnerability. We are helpless in front of certain things. So instead of moaning our helplessness, uh, uh, realizing actualizing the helplessness, 
actualizing the vulnerability, thanks to which perhaps a certain strength of character can emerge. You know, uh, mm. psychoanalysis, we cannot do much about our DNA. We cannot do much about our uh, environment, our socio-historical uh, event in the world. But character is something that can be perhaps analyzed. You and your brother or sister are from the same DNA, the same socio-historic milieu, etc. And yet one of you is jubilant, the other instead is depressed. So go figure and go. Mm -hmm. You cannot have a socio-historic determination. You cannot have a total DNA determination. You do have also a character impact that can make a certain series of tropism possible. And we are those tropisms, I think. And that's the power of art as well. So I think we'll turn to talking about the film in some detail here in one second. But there's one other thing I wanted to sort of ask you. I, and I think we'll touch about it on it through our conversation. But I want to ask you just about the, the power of film as a narrative tool. And I think it's, again, it's part of the the historian in, you know, in me's um, fascination and hesitation sometime with film which is that we're always making narratives, of course. And disasters of are, for many of the reasons you were just describing, they, they demand a narrative structure for us to make sense of them. And I think particularly they demand that they have an ending, right? Um, and so origins sometimes are of disasters uh, in disaster films are left a little a little bit, you know, murky. I mean, maybe that's what drives the film forward sometimes. And we'll talk about that with, with Contagion. But there's powerful sense-making work going on for people with film. And because it's also multi-sensory. And I wonder about your, your feelings about, about that and the, the positive impacts on that, that for psychologically, which you were touching on before, but maybe also some of the negative impacts. In other words, in most of these uh, disaster films that I've watched, and not just the pandemic films, um, there is a resolution. It may not even be a happy resolution, but there is a resolution. History doesn't afford us that a lot of times. It's not clear. It's it's diffuse. It's it's uncertain at the at the end, at the point at which we end the chapter. And so I wanted to sort of draw you out a little bit on how you think of the relationship, you know, between film and narrative and sense-making in disaster. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I think that um, two ways of dealing with this. One is the fact that in the same way as opera was a total medium of the 19th century, it had an extraordinary narrative, it has extraordinary sound, it has music, it has a story and uh, cast of characters, cast of uh, performers. Uh, the 19th century is the opera. And you start really way back in the Renaissance, Monteverdi, all the way to Mozart and Verdi, Mozart in the 18th century, Verdi in the 19th, Wagner as well. So this is the totality of a medium in the 19th century. Cinema, which starts in 1895, up to the present, cinema takes over as a total medium. And the way in which, as a total medium, it is, as you said, a narrative, but it's a narrative that complements the existential. Because remember, we don't know when we were born. We don't know when we die. Uh, our bit writer knows when we die and can tell a story about us. 
you know, but we cannot. And so we are in an extraordinary arc in our existence between the moment of the beginning of self-consciousness and the moment when we decline. And so it's not as if we have to have a teleology saying, I reach the best, etc., etc., as much as admiring in our lives all the possibilities, literally, of the uh, questions of achievement, accomplishment at every stage of our lives. And so at some point we establish a synthesis, but basically the synthesis is uh, ex post facto and post mortem, as opposed to the the way in which we experience. But another thing about narratives, and we're going to touch upon this on uh, about this film as well, is that any narrative starts with uh, the breaking of order, the breaking of a law. There's a transgression. And because there's a transgression, a story occurs. The story has to end. But remember that the end is a convention. It has to end. But during two hours of a film, during 400 pages of a novel, the law is suspended and transgressed. And so in our unconscious, in our imagination, we are enjoying the transgressions that are possible through the imagination, thanks to the possible world that literature opens up, music opens up, and suddenly cinema opens up. And then, you know, very often with my students in my uh, professorial side, my students, I say, watch the first five minutes of the last five minutes of a film. And then start seeing it, start looking at it. Because at the beginning, you're entirely captivated by where does it go, how does it end? Mm-hmm. And then you miss out everything else. You miss out the composition, you miss out the poetic image, you miss out the transcendent moments. Because I distinguish between a movie and a film. A movie is something you experience for the first time. A film is a movie that you study. When you study it, you start seeing mm-hmm. the recursive pattern whether it's sounds, the means of cinema, objects in the image, you start seeing all that, and which is what you've missed out because you were after, just like the little kid to whom you tell a fairy tale, how does it end? <laughs> so, yeah. how does it end? We don't know. Existence does not end. As I said, we are not there for our deaths. We are not there to write our deaths. And so, that's so interesting. You're, you're, in other words, you, you assign your students, you tell, you give them the spoiler alert is the, is what your assignment to them. They have to, yeah. they have to experience the ending first so that they can actually see, see the substantial reality of the film itself. That's quite brilliant, actually. Yes. And therefore, they enjoy even more than knowing where it leads. It releases the tension of narrativity, which is linear. You want to go nonlinear. How do you go nonlinear? You get to the principle of composition and you get to the level where you are enjoying the richness. When you replay a film for your friends saying, I want you to watch this film that I enjoy, you replay a certain scene, a certain sequence, a couple of sequences that you found transcendent. You don't replay the whole film. Mm. Uh, This is why, in a certain way, just like uh, you read a book and you have some bookmarks, you don't bookmark the whole book <laughs> yeah. unless, yeah. unless you're going to spend right. You know, I, I just, just, a, just to stay on this for one second, I recently showed my oldest son, actually both of my sons, um, and uh, I showed them 2001 Space Odyssey. And these, they're younger kids. It's a long movie. It's complicated. And, I, and throughout, of course, like just as you say, if you're waiting for the end of that film, I mean, the, 
the end is intentionally an invitation to to not know, uh, and <laughs> and and the end itself is a is a paradox on time and many other things. Um, and at various moments in the film, you know, my my older son was saying, you know, what does this have to? Where is this going? Like, what's the? And I said, just as you said, I said, I think you have to set aside the ending point for this film and enjoy the individual moments of it. And he agreed after it was over. He said, yeah, I, I don't know about the ending, but he liked various moments along, along the way. I remember and, inviting, I was teaching that film once and I remember I taught, I wrote a lot also about Kubrick. I think he's an American genius, but uh, uh, I remember inviting an astrophysicist to one of my lectures on 2001. And then the guy had a kind of photographic memory. And I said, uh, the monolith occurs three times. He said, no, four times. <laughs> and so I, so he named the, the, the one that I had missed, you know, which was very interesting. And the monolith being a kind of metaphor about evolution going all right, let's start all over again. The monolith in itself appearing with the apes, appearing on the moon, appearing sideways, which I had missed with a cosmonaut ship, so to speak. Mm. And at the very end, when you have the cosmonaut fusing all the time frames at the end. So suddenly, if you're after this film, suddenly you make sense out of the monolith, you realize that you're back at the very beginning, that evolution has gone awry, and we better start over again, because as Kubrick said, we're all going to hell on a handbasket, might as well enjoy the ride. <laughs> Let, let me just do a quick reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls. I'm talking to Alan Cohen today about film and pandemic. And uh, that's a great segue to talk about contagion. I mean, you're talking about nonlinearity and um, the problem of time. And Soderbergh is a director who, of course, um, enjoys that, has a lot of play with that. I mean, I think even in the sort of film, and you may talk about this, his sort of like so-called hyperlink style. He likes to move you around uh, a narrative, and this film is a masterclass in that. So set up the film for us. You've talked about why you think it's important and, and why it's relevant to this time. So let's talk about Contagion. Thank you. Thank you very much. So let's say, let me give you perhaps a little recall about uh, my methods. Uh, I already mentioned linear and nonlinear in terms of approaches. One is going to be uh, driven by the narrative, the other is driven by the poetics of the composition. But also I'd like to uh, underscore the fact that um, any film, it works also with any uh, artwork, is uh, working at the intersection of four different subjectivities or four different uh, intersubjectivities. So with a film specifically, you would say you have the director, and I'm mentioning auteur filmmakers, the ones who have last cut, etc., final cut. And so, but it comes with a whole cast of people doing the sound, during the light, during the music, the post sync, etc. But basically, we designate the first subjectivity as being the director. In this case, let's say Soderbergh. 
But Soderbergh comes not only with his subjectivity, but he comes with uh, his own history. His own, uh, he's loaded with different films, different prizes, and what have you. So Soderbergh is a principle of a filmic apparatus, as we call it. The second subjectivity is the principle of spectatorship. So it's, uh, it's us, it's uh, viewers, but it's at the same time perhaps an ideal viewer in ourselves where we uh, are more or less encyclopedic of, uh, of the quantity of films we have ingested during our lives and in which we're going to set the, the current experience at work. The third subjectivity is uh, one of the interdefined characters. So very interdefined, you know, in the same way as you don't have Hamlet per se, you have Hamlet, Ophelia, Gertrude, Claudius, and, and that, et cetera. You, you do have the characters who are interdefined. And therefore, they're all in the mind of Shakespeare, and it's the different velleities in the mind of Shakespeare that take different forms and different directions. So this is your interdefined characters. The fourth one, which is just as important, is the actors and actresses who play the characters. So Kate Winslet comes with an extraordinary load of previous film as does Gwyneth Paltrow, as does Jude Law, as does Lawrence Fishburne. When we see Lawrence Fishburne, we cannot not think about a Shakespearean actor. He played a fantastic Othello. He's a Matrix, per se, much more than Neo, etc. So this is really what comes to mind as we're watching. So not only do you have those four subjectivities that are intersecting, but you have our four different unconscious that are intersecting. In other words, Soderbergh wants to capture me in terms of my affect, in terms of my emotions, in terms of my sense of wisdom, at the same time, sense of right and wrong, as much as what I like, what I don't like. So he wants to capture me. And how does he capture me? Through his cast of characters. And how do the cast of characters capture are captured by the actors who play the cast of characters. So when you see the experience that we have, every time we are there, we see our unconscious at work and wondering, you know, the discussions that we have after a film with friends in the old days before COVID, when we'd go out to theaters, we'd have great discussions. Somebody would like, somebody wouldn't like, etc. And I think it's a... It's a maximal experience of understanding that it appeals to you for a particular reason. And then you have to find in your own processing and unconscious how you broke down the film in order to, to speak about your aesthetics and your ethics and your philosophy of life and life as reflected in cinema. I think that's perhaps fundamental to, to proceed and to, and to say, there's a question of intersubjectivity. There's a question of, uh, you know, you cannot, everybody has their own interpretation, but there are rules, conventions. You have to actually be exhaustive in your interpretation. But a film is convoking you, interpolating you to say, play with me and give me the best possible interpretation, the richest possible interpretation. So we're not after, you see, we're not after Soderbergh per se. We're not after Kate Winslet either. We're really after an interaction that we have with a film object and the way in which a film psychoanalyzes us much more than we psychoanalyze it. And that's perhaps the mirroring, the mirroring effect 
that's a work of art of, uh, of a certain caliber, but it doesn't matter whether it's great or not, but a work of art uh, interpolates from ourselves. And so it's with this in mind that I, mm. I like to engage with uh, the methods of analysis of films. That just thank you for introducing those those ideas and the intersubjectivities. And I want to um, I just want to linger there for one second, which is also about how you think about the passage of time. So, in other words, you've seen this film. Maybe you saw it in the in the theater when it came out. Had this discussion as you described with friends in a pre-COVID world, a world just two years after the H1N1 global swine flu. So you do have some historical grounding to talk about it, and that helps you think a bit about Soderbergh and his world and Soderbergh's relationship with the story and that, just as you said, these intersubjectivities. But then you see it again, maybe a few years later, and then you see it in 2021. The passage of the time and how the individual changes, how does that factor into this relationship, as you say, between the unconscious or their their identity, their personality, and the, the film, which is interrogating them? I like that idea very much. Do, do you know, you see with your patients, uh, you see very well somebody saying, I love my mother at five, I started being ingrate at 10, at 15, I couldn't wait to leave home, at 20, I was nostalgic for the family reunions, at 40, I love my mother. You know, it's, it's really extra. So this is the way right. you're dealing also with your interpretation of the film. As you read it again, as you see a film again, as you uh, interrelate with your friends and relatives and your mother and your parental objectize, your primary objectize, your, your parental figures, as you evolve in this sense, you see that you are enriched by each moment. Uh, as I mentioned in the arc of our existences, each moment is itself enhanced by the pleasure of uh, discovering of course, I was an ingrate at 15. Of course, I couldn't wait to leave home. Of course, at some point, I had the nostalgia, which is no longer fulfillable for a reunion, for the pleasure, for the love, for the, uh, you know, the gleam in mother's eye that sustains you throughout your life, even though you don't know it. Uh, it's so unconscious. That is what calls you back and says, I really cannot believe I was like that at 15. Etc. Uh, Etc. Et so same thing with the film. I think I paid that much attention when I first saw it when it came out. I, I felt, yeah, it's another one of those things. And you're right; it was right after SARS, and therefore there was some kind of uh, no, no. But it's really so much hitting you, just like rereading Camus, which became again a bestseller in Italy first and then afterwards all over Europe and in this country as well. So same thing with rereading and you reread and reread and eventually you see that um, I, I have a, a friend who says, when I retire, I'm going to really read Hegel. <laughs> or somebody else who says, I'm going to take the time to reread Proust because when I right. read First, I was too young to understand anything that I was reading. That's that's a pleasure, uh, right? Yeah, right. Anyway, well, yeah. So let's that's thank you for that that meditation on that, and I think it's it's um, it's it's really worth considering how and many people who like this film um, talk about the experience of seeing knowing it before twenty twenty and knowing it differently after. So take us into Steven Soderbergh's world. 
Very good. So, uh, speaking about uh, contagion, I would say um, it's very different from uh, The Good German, which is a fantastic film of his. Kate Blanchett is extraordinary. It's different from Sex Lies Videotape, which launched his career, basically, and some of his first prizes. It's a different film, uh, but I think that it has something to do with it, and I'm going to try to point it out. So first, let's deal with the linearities of the film, and then we'll go to the poetic saliences and the affective saliences. I would say, um, in terms of what we call narrative programs, in the old days we'd say plots and subplots, but narrative programs, you find how you have con concurrent narrative programs that are evolving simultaneously, and eventually at the end of the film you say the master program would be as opposed to the different sub-programs or the different programs themselves. For example, in Blade Runner, you would say, there seems to be a love story, there seems to be an identification and the killing of the replicants, there seems to be a killing of the Blade Runners, etc. But basically, the master program in Ridley Scott's film in 1982, the master program was to show that the replicants had more humanity than the humans left on Earth and they return to a radioactive Earth in order precisely to be able to gain some more life, more years of life, because they were programmed to live only four years, and they had to return to Earth. So the master program is extraordinary when eventually in your construction, because it's a construction, it's an interpretive construction, when you, when you say, I think I've nailed it, the richest possible interpretation is more humanity in the replicants than in the humans. So similarly, we have to find this here. So one of the, uh, the five programs that you have in uh, Contagion, one is an apparent uh, love story of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow's character. Uh, she is back from Hong Kong. She is very successful with her company. And she's back from Hong Kong, makes a stop in uh, Chicago to see on her way back to Minneapolis, where she lives, she makes a stop in Chicago, extends the, st the stop a few hours in order to see an old lover. And then you have a harsh, superegoic punishment. As soon as she's back home, she dies of COVID, I mean, of, uh, <laughs> of a virus. Okay, so you right. feel, well, she had an innocent tryst with an old lover, maybe, sure, it is a transgression because she's married and has a child with a new husband, etc. On the other hand, there's something terrible that occurred there, and she only reappears, that's part of the intermediality between the filmic image and the video disc image of surveillance in the casino, she only reappears uh, through the video surveillance uh, study by one of the characters to whom I'm going to come in a minute. And so it's a bit like Hitchcock in Psycho, where you have Janet Lee dying 40 minutes into a two hour film. And you say, you can't kill the main actress. You can't right. kill the star. And with Gwyneth Paltrow, you kill her instantaneously. She just yeah. has two minutes of, of screen time and she dies until she reappears, as I said. Um, so you realize that there's a domestic tragedy here in terms of uh, Oedipal, in terms of a transgression, and she suffers so much for a transgression by being hit with a virus and dying. And so that's one of the arcs. The second program that I want to talk about is perhaps uh, 
the program of uh, Alice Cheever, played by Lawrence Fishburne, Shakespearean, as I said, etc. So as soon as you have a narrative, you have antagonists, protagonists, and antagonists. You have an agonistus. So in this agonistics, basically, uh, Dr. Cheever's, Dr. Cheever is really uh, in a fight against many, he's a kind of Dr. Fauci today at some level, but he's in a fight against the media. And in, he's in fact in a fight against a blogger who is sadistic, who is a hacker, who has no scrupule, who wants to discredit the CDC with his tweets. He has 12 million followers. He's played magnificently by Jude Law, whom you love to hate. He's such a villain, you can't wait to see him killed, and he's not killed, and you're frustrated. But he disappears at the end. And he's a guy who wants to uh, exploit his uh, forsythia, which is a bit like the hydrochloroxine of uh, the COVID era. So this is, uh, this is a second narrative program. It's going to prevail at the end. But he's going to prevail, but uh, he's going to be accused of a minor infraction, such as giving a privilege to his wife of a vaccine, which he should never have done. You know, uh, I cannot believe, shocking, shocking, that he, he gave a privilege of vaccine to his wife instead of waiting for her number to appear. That's the infraction that he's accused of. It's practically, uh, there's an inquisition about this. Instead of celebrating his victory, then he is a bit like uh, Dr. Ryu for Camus. He's really, uh, he has acolytes, he has adjuvants, and he has a three-front series of adjuvants. One is Kate Winslet, Dr. Mears. She rejoins Minneapolis uh, for the CDC from Atlanta, goes to, and she joins in a struggle concerning public health. The second one is uh, Leonora Orantes, who is played by Marion Cotillard. You cannot forget her as Edith Piaf in the film La Vie en Rose, for example. Among other films, she is really quite a star, uh, not just in France, uh, internationally. So she is uh, working for the WHO, the World Health Organization. So this is the second prong out of the three prongs that is that are orchestrated by Cheever, uh, Lawrence Fishburne. So this is a second narrative, and she is studying very carefully the origins of the virus. She goes all the way to Hong Kong. She studies the video disc of surveillance to see who uh, Gwyneth Paltrow was in contact with, with whom she shook hands, with whom she played at the casino to gamble, etc. And so she's detecting and she's making progress and see the network of contamination. Mm. And the third prong, is uh, Dr. Ali Hextel, played by a magnificent Jennifer Helley, uh, who works in a lab for the search for the vaccine. And so you do have a magnificent team orchestrated by Cheever, and they're all reporting to him. So when you first meet Kate Winslet, She's all business. She knows what she's talking about. She lectures on a board by speaking about the not factor of contamination with polio, with regular flu, with measles, etc., and says we don't know yet where this virus is leading us with the not factor. She's lecturing. She's also telling people, don't touch yourself. You're really touching your face 2,000 times 
a day and you're going to contaminate yourself with everything that you touch around. Or else she has a gymnasium which is going to be dedicated to the, uh, uh, to the beds for all the patients who need help. You have the impression that she is going to solve it. In, and then, just like Hitchcock with Janet Lee in Psycho, you have Soderbergh killing her uh, she first has a, t a cough, just like uh, Kate Winslet at the beginning of the film. She first has a cough, and you know she has the symptoms, and you know she's going to die, and you can't believe it. You leave us hanging. Who yeah. is going to take care of the uh, resolution? Similarly, with uh, Marion Cotillard's arc of narrative, in other words, she's doing good business. She's uncovering the network of characters touched by Gwyneth Paltrow and all contaminated. And you have the impression that basically she's going to find the origins of the virus, whether it's a bat or whether it's a lab or whether, etc. Until in Hong Kong, she's kidnapped by her host, a host in the village not too far from Macau near Hong Kong. Her host kidnap her and say, you're going to help cure my whole village, which is contaminated, the contagion, until you give us a vaccine. And so it's unbelievable. You have great negotiations between uh, the, uh, the home security and the kidnappers. Eventually, the kidnappers are given vaccines. She's liberated. She's on her way back home to the States. She was working with the Who in Geneva. She's on her way back to the States. She's at the airport. And she finds out from the homeland security person she finds out that a placebo was given to her kidnappers. She had such deep deontology that she runs away. She was coming left screen, she goes right screen. She goes away from the scene, the screen. And this is wonderful on the part of uh, Soderbergh. It's very postmodern. You never see her again. You assume that she's going back to her kidnappers to mm -hmm. say, you've been fooled. And you don't know what happens to her. And you don't know what happens to her scientific search for the origin of the virus. Yeah. So it's an unacceptable, unbearable, and therefore, just like Kate Winslet dying 40 minutes or an hour into the film, you have Leonora, uh, Marion Cotillard, you have uh, Leonora who disappears into, into just the fog of, right. uh, of deontology, of medical deontology. And then you have Ali Hextall, who is really the star of the show, and uh, basically she is uh, patient, she is humorous. Uh, when Shiva says, when are we going to find a solution? She says, well, ask the monkeys, you know, etc. And so, and so at some point, and it's very intricate in the film, but not that intricate really, at some point she tests a vaccine on herself. And uh, Testing vaccine on herself is quite a risk. Yeah. She can die from it, but she succeeds. And the first thing that she does, she's not at all a look at me narcissist. The first thing that she does is to go to her hospital where her father is uh, in agony or dying practically, probably from the virus. It's not made clear. And she says, Dad, Dad, I've tested the vaccine on myself. And the dad is saying, my God, what have you done? And then he's proud of her. And that pride of her dying dad, agonizing dad, is worth for her even the Nobel Prize that she will probably acquire as a result of her work. 
And so uh, this is perhaps uh, the, the fifth uh, the fifth sort of uh, narrative program uh, that I would uh, mention. Now, in order to understand the pleasure that we have with this film, we have to go to the poetic saliences and we have to go to uh, perhaps uh, the, uh, the prowesses that you have technically on the part of Soderbergh. So I would play with bookends and the bookends that I play with are going to be at the very beginning of the film when you see technically the spread of the contagion and uh, at the end of the film you see the, the thick red thread that Soderbergh has uh, put together by postponing, by starting us uh, as a kind of rhetorical strategy, starting with day two and we go back to day one and suddenly we have cause and effect. But before I comment on this, if we have time, I'd like to I'd like to give a few glimpses of the very beginning of the film when you have the contagion spreading. Sure. Let's let's come to that. Let me just remind um, the audience very quickly that you're listening to COVID calls, and I'm talking today to Alan Cohen about the film Contagion, and I really like how you laid out the different the different programs there. I just want to sneak in one small question before we turn to this, which is the um, I like the way you described um, Dr. Hextall and, and the, um, one of the boldest things, uh, in the film is her inoculating herself, which again is, there's a lot of important play going on there. I mean, here you have this, the setting of this mass global event of death, but he still manages to heighten the suspense and care and concern that for this one person. And that, that in itself is a difficult issue of storytelling. But talk to me, if you would, about that as a theme that runs across many of the pandemic films. Because, I mean, even, I don't know if you think it's a great film or not, but Omega Man is a sort of classic you know, pandemic film. And then, the, um, of course, the, the remake, the update of Omega Man with I Am Legend. Um, this is a theme that runs, that runs across, and we see it again in Contagion. And I wonder what you what you think about that? What kind of work is that doing for the director that we have this, um, you know, ultimately very nonviolent act, mm -hmm. but that the, the film hangs on it for a, for a second. I think in some ways you could say, the, as you, you said, the most important program is hanging on this, this moment where the doctor decides that, well, to save humanity, I'm going to have to put myself in this one spot of danger. Yes, I think it's an epiphanic moment in the film. It looks very simple. It's a shot which is even darkened. There's a chiaroscuro there about this shot. And you are clashed between, on the one hand, she's doing it, she, uh, she's pull, pulling up a dress, and she is inoculating herself on the back of her thigh. And by the way, Soderbergh is not shy at all about the erotics of a of a body, of a female body in particular. Think about Kate Blanchett in uh, The Good German. It's unbelievable how well we enjoy erotically what is happening to her figure. So here we are clashed between, on the one hand, our libidinal tendencies, and on the other hand, our ethical sense. And so he manages, and this is what's so profound here, he manages to have the character and to have the actress being neutral, 
neither exhibitionistic nor shy. And so the turning point here at that clash between the libidinal and the ethical, because basically we, 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 we feel that this film is not about erotics. This film is not about the, the showing of the human body in, in its nudity, but it's so well shot in a scaroscuro without the exhibitionistic uh, tendencies that you would have in an actress or in a character that the epiphany works, mm. you see? And see. then, and then that's why she can jump from there. Uh, you don't have that very often. You have the aha moments in all the, in all the disaster films, in all the contagion films. You always have a aha moment where something turns around. Uh, but basically, you you have to wait. You have to pay for your pleasure of things turning that's around. Right. <laughs> that's right. The okay. fact that he chose that moment to have that clash. But we love being clashed because we don't know whether to go into the aesthetic or to go into the ethic. We're really in between, on the fence. And that's a a very powerful way of manipulating the position of a spectator. Thank you for contextualizing that part of the part of the film. So, um, okay, I think we're I didn't want to take you away from your where you were heading, but I did want to linger on that just for a second, because it's important across these different films. So tell us more. What are we going to see some clips now? So let's see the, 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 a few of the salient moments that you have in terms of the, uh, the filmic prowesses. So I'm going to share, share screen, share screen. No, I'm no longer there. Wait a second. Oh, I see. Contagion, allow. Do you see a dark screen? We're good. Excellent. So this is the very beginning of a film. And I like a film that starts with a dark screen. Godard does that very well, by the way, in two or three things I know about her. You have voices on a dark screen reminding you that the, the soundtrack is just as important, if not more, than the visuals track. And on a dark screen, we hear the cough, and the cough has to be identified, and it's going to lead us to Gwyneth Paltrow in denial, saying, it's just, I'm just tired. (laughs) All right, so here we are, and she's going to talk to her uh, ex in order to say how much uh, they enjoyed the moment, the few hours that they had together during the stopover in uh, Chicago. The next thing that I want to show in terms of uh, the the pleasure of cinema is a bit into Contagion in day two. So look at this, listen to the soundtrack electronic music, giving us a sense of the dash, a sense of the precipitation, and a sense because music is so meaningful and we don't know what meaning to assign to music we project. So there's something of an intensity and something that seems to be narratively, musically narratively, leading somewhere.
is wonderful to a very high angle of the same guy. And we move very fast from Hong Kong to London and the model who is also going to be struck by the virus. who is going to undergo exactly the same fate. Now, on the news, very quickly thereafter, you have the spread. And this is virtuoso uh, control. I'm going to uh, skip a little bit. Some say the authorities wouldn't do an autopsy. Just go, go up to your room, honey. Uh, and should be here with you. Sorry, it's very hard with VLC to control the exact moment that you want. You can go up to the window. You can pick up the phone to the window. You can pick up the. I'm sorry. I'm sorry again. Um, is this something we want to release to the press? Respiratory. Respiratory. When you come in. Hello? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, uh, stay there, Clark. What cures it? Things that keep people calm. I'm sorry, I cannot control completely the VLC, as I explained. It's a very sensitive uh, platform. But uh, let's deal with the best we can. Here we have the lab cosmonauts, as I like to call them, uh, testing and trying to find something regarding the possibility of research on the vaccine. What we got? A young woman in Minnesota recently traveled to China. Son also died. As of this morning, 87 cases, 15 deaths. Did you have a good Thanksgiving? Yeah, it worked. You? Really? Texas. Salmonella. Yeah. Pretty good. Okay. 
I'm going to speed it up because I, I can't work well. I'm going to try to go to 103. Not. Is there, is there anyone out? Everybody now. I can't find any in the stores I tried it. Look, I don't bring it to you when I get it. When did we run out of body bags? Two days ago. I'm trying to get more in from Canada, but they just want to wait and see. The first to track the Shinko busman busman video, uh, Alan. Uh, today I, I really apologize. As I said, it's so difficult to control the VLC, and I'm not getting the images that I wanted to give you, unfortunately. So let me try again 103 because it's important. Today on Twitter, you, you wrote that the our best. This is salient both uh, in terms of narrative and in terms of the uh, aesthetics of a film. This is Kate Winslet, Dr. Mares, and she's dying. Oh, I'm truly sorry, sir. We're out of blankets. We're hoping for more to be donated. We put the word out. I'll find out. Look at the diagonal that you have here and the way in which it is lit and the way in which the person, the patient next to her is uh, shivering with cold. She herself is about to die, but she has one last act, which is ethically and deontologically unbelievable, to get rid of her own blanket that she won't need anymore because she's dying and to give it away. <laughs> Great. So next thing that I wanted to show was Ali Hextor going to her father's hospital bed, but I talked about it and we don't have enough time. Let me go to the another uh, another salience which I find extraordinary is uh, the way in which you have the agonistics of Leonora Orantes, Marion Cotillard, 
and how she is involved in a, in a series of extraordinary uh, moments. Uh, so she is indignant about the machiavellism of the, um, let me see, 129. <laughs> Eagles, you'll never see her again. So remember the soundtrack as well, which is recursive, and you have the same sort of soundtrack as the one that you had, the Rush soundtrack that you had at the beginning of the film. Let me go finally to, uh, before I go to the end, the end sequence, which is just a minute. Before that, I want to go to 135.48, which is when you have, uh, oh, what happened? Are we um, out of time? <laughs> no, I think may just need to share again. There might be a time limit on the share. Uh, so if you can just load that back up, and that gives me a chance to remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking today to Alan Cohen about the film Contagion, and uh, he's been going through and uh, showing us some clips here after our conversation about the thematics and intersubjectivities of the film. It looks like we do have it back, so I'm going to bring that back up. Thank you. Thank you. So let me go to 135. It's an extraordinary shot where you have... <laughs> The history of the virus is together.
going from SARS to H1N1 and MV1. between people being inoculated and being uh, putting together all the viruses. This is a shot I really think is uh, making the whole film very well synthesized as if we had a bubonic plague, as if we had the bacillus of the plague, as if we, we have all of them put together, SARS, H1N1, and the current one, to which we would add today uh, COVID-19. Mm. And we say goodbye, literally, and with caution. And then we come to the enigmatic end. I won't play this part, but the enigmatic end. Dad, are you coming? Yep. I'm just looking for the camera. the beginning is right here edible look of father on daughter whom he was really overprotecting and then we get to this very interesting Look at those 15 shots, and it's eight different visions, and it's just a minute and 15 seconds. In a way, uh, 
Uh, Soderbergh was playing throughout the film between the pseudo-documentary aspect of his film and the fiction part. And all of a sudden, he's leading us by the hand, and he's totally didactic and preaching, and he has forgotten that he was dealing with an extraordinary power of fiction, and he wants to be documentarist only. And it's unfortunate because, for me at least, it spoils the film, and we can talk about it. So here it is. <laughs> This is Gwyneth Paltrow's company in uh, uh, near Macau. But the image is sublime in terms of a dark blue and the silhouette of the trees. Trees are being felled and the bats are flying away. Bat flying away, hanging down, dropping. You see, this drop is exactly what is in terms of the uh, documentary aspect of the Soderbergh film, what causes the virus to spread. It spread on a pig's farm. The pigs are being made ready for the trucks. Carried to the cuisines for human consumption. Culinary art. The chef at the casino in Hong Kong is asked to uh, speak to a customer. <clears throat> Cleaning himself up. Shaking hands with Gwyneth Paltrow. So you see how we have uh, yeah. hands very well orchestrated here. And in this handshake, of course, everything passes. Remember that we've had 15 shots leading to the eighth vision of what actually occurs, and therefore we have a cause and effect about the zoonotic uh, theory about the origins of the virus. Right. When we say origins, we have to think of Heidegger and the origin of origin and the fact that it's a simulation, but it's a different story. And rhetorically, we go back to day one that was right. arbitrarily missing, rhetorically missing from the beginning of the film, precisely to make a story B. Always remember, always remember where the director signs his or her name. Hey, so we should probably um, move towards conclusion here. Um, I think there we go. Oh. I'm just going to mute for one second while Alan is uh, getting the soundtrack off and just remind folks that you. I've been listening to COVID calls and, and a really 
amazing tour through the Steven Soderbergh uh, 2011 Steven Soderbergh film Contagion. And we just we have to wrap up here, Alan, but uh, maybe just give you a sort of a, a last word. I want to just you say you think that last minute and 15 second sequence for you ruins the film. Why? Because I think he was working so hard on the tension between the pseudo-documentary aspect of his film and the fiction aspect. The fiction is enough. You know, in other words, if you want to make a film about, uh, make a documentary about science, make a documentary about the access of vaccination, etc., do it. There's no problem with that. I love documentaries as well. It's a medium in and of itself. And if you're into fiction, uh, stay with the power of fiction. So he's robbing himself of the power of fiction by preaching at the very end and say, here is what happens. And so it's in the same way as Orson Welles in, uh, in uh, Citizen Kane. You remember that mm-hmm. the, the, secret, the secret is given at the end of the film, not of the people who were, the five different people who were looking for the secret of... Uh, of the last word uh, of Orson Welles' uh, character, but it's given to the spectator. So at some level, it's as if you frustrate the, the cast of interactants, the cast of characters, in order to gratify the pleasure of the viewer. Here we are gratified with what? We're gratified with Soderbergh's vision about uh, the documentary aspect of the vaccine access instead of uh, the power of fiction. We are really uh, literally frustrated of the fiction that we were engaged into, interpolated by, and convoked to work with, because suddenly everything is clear. You have a happy ending, practically. Happy ending epistemically. Epistemically, we have a happy ending because it all makes sense, and here is a cause and effect. I should remind folks that you've been listening to COVID Calls, and you can usually catch COVID Calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, although uh, we'll be starting now uh, on Tuesday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, with COVID Calls running around the clock for two days as we lead up to the opening of the COVID Calls Digital Archive. Uh, Alan Cohen, this has been, I've enjoyed this so much. The first half of our conversation, which we talked about, um, you know, the, the ways, what film means, what disaster film means, and the philosophical orientation that you gave us to think about what we then just talked about going through Contagion in this detail. You're a fun person to talk about films with because we're talking about much, much more. Um, but then I also love your technical acumen and sort of pointing out things that I had not seen before in this film, which I've watched so many times. Um, thanks for the work you're doing on this and, and for taking the time today to talk about it with me on COVID calls. Thank you. Thank you Stay so healthy. much. The pleasure was mine. <laughs> Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID calls.